The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the Word. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. But when we confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him in the privacy of our priesthood, in the privacy of our own soul, then at that instant we are forgiven. God forgets the sin. We are separated from it as far as the East is from the West. It is no longer an issue. Divine discipline may follow, consequences may follow, but we are still restored to fellowship with God, and we can continue our advance in the spiritual life. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege and the freedom in this nation to gather together as believers this morning. We thank you for the leadership that you have given this nation in the past. We thank you for those who have given the ultimate sacrifice in order to give us our freedoms and to preserve our freedoms. Now, Father, as we find this nation under attack, we find ourselves in this war against terrorism. We pray that you would continue to uh, give our leaders the moral courage and the clarity that they need to make the right decisions that they may continue to uh, lead and direct this nation in such a way that our freedoms, especially the freedoms to worship you, to study your word, to send out missionaries to support Israel, as long as these freedoms may be preserved and protected. Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to guide and direct this local church, that as we look to the future, as we wrestle with uh, problems related to this old building and the things that we have to do to uh, get things uh, fixed and repaired and, and uh, plan for the future that you would give the, the deacons, the leadership here, the wisdom to make the right decisions. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study, that the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us, that we would have the, the humility, the objectivity, the teachability to respond to the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit by putting these things into practice in our own thinking and in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and we 
are approaching the end of our study, almost two years now. I think it was in December of 2000 that we began our study of First John, and we have maybe one more week. I think perhaps next week we will be concluding our study in this epistle. Last week we studied verses 15 and 16, which had to do with prayer. What John is doing at the conclusion of this epistle is wrapping up some key principles that he's emphasized throughout our study of 1 John. Now, remember, the overall context of 1 John is that of abiding in Christ, fellowship. The believer needs to abide in him. That's the command in 1 John 2.28, so that we are not ashamed at his coming, so that we may receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And as we come to the end of this epistle in the conclusion, which began in 1 John 5, uh, chapter 3, he is reiterating the fact that we can have, uh, we can conquer cosmic thinking in our soul because of uh, the faith rest drill and application of doctrine, that this is ultimately related to uh, Jesus Christ as the hypostatic union. The foundation, therefore, for the spiritual life in the church age is an understanding of who Jesus Christ is as undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person together, that in his humanity Jesus Christ did not rely on his deity in order to solve problems of temptation and testing in the in his spiritual life. Scripture teaches that uh, Jesus Christ was tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. He was able to remain impeccable not because he relied on his deity, but because he applied doctrine in his soul through the filling of the Holy Spirit and dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. In that, he was the one who pioneered for us the spiritual life, the unique spiritual life of the church age. As part of that spiritual life, and in that, he is the one who was a witness or testimony in the angelic conflict. That's the point that John is reiterating in verses 7 through 10, and emphasizing that it is through the Son that we have life, not simply everlasting or non-ending, uninterrupted life that is in heaven, but the quality of life. That is the emphasis in verses 11 uh, through 13, and the summary and the emphasis is in verse 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That's getting eternal life at the cross, uh, that is, in the sense of everlasting life in the presence of God. These things I've written to you who believe you're already saved, in that sense, phase one, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, continuing to rely upon Jesus Christ in terms of who he is in the hypostatic union was the issue of that day because the false teachers were claiming that Jesus was just a manifestation, that he really wasn't a true God, undiminished deity, that he really wasn't the uh, the Messiah. All of these different facets were being uh, these different false ideas were being bandied about in Ephesus at that time, and the implication of each and every one of them was to destroy the uh, or to attack the doctrine of the hypostatic union and the uh, precedent-setting life of Jesus Christ uh, on the earth during the incarnation, the time of the hypostatic union, establishing the, establishing the precedent for our spiritual life. 
Now, as a result of abiding, as a result of maturing to experience this full, abundant life that Jesus talked about, John's concept of, of the eternal life is not simply, as I've said, the ongoing life, but we must go back to John chapter 10 where Jesus said, I didn't come like a thief to destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. To give life is phase one. Abundant life is reaching the mature or adult spiritual life as a result of spiritual growth. So as a result of that, it impacts our prayer life. This is the confidence that we have in him, verse 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Verses 14 and 16, I mean 14 and 15, talk about our prayer life. That was the subject last week, that we can have confidence in what we ask of him because we ask according to his will. And it's a confidence that is in him as a result of our abiding in him. Now in verse 16, we can't jerk verse 16 out of the context. In verse 16, it says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. What is the context? The context is prayer. Verses 14 and 15 just got through saying, we know that he, that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we ask of him, and then we're told about asking in prayer in a particular situation in verse 16. And that verse, verse is, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death. So we have two categories of of sin in verse 16, that which leads to death and that which does not lead to death. But before we get there into the doctrine of the sin unto death, we need to do some basic exegesis in verse 16 just to understand what's going on here. First of all, it begins with an if in the English, which is a translation of the Greek word aeon, which is uh, the conditional clause, the expression of a third class uh, conditional clause in the in the Greek. Now, the Greek expresses conditional clauses in four different ways. There's a lot of debate among grammarians as to whether the fourth class condition is actually used in the Scripture. But the third class condition is what we normally think of as a condition. If... And it could be either yes, if you do, and or no, you don't. It is the true hypothetical. Maybe you will see your brother sinning, maybe you will not. This is related to another believer. Now remember, we have another command related to the concept of brother in John. He emphasizes the fact that we are to love one another. This is his lengthy explanation of Jesus' new commandment in John 13, 34, and 35, that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. 
So part of the application of this principle is of loving one another is recognizing the fact that we need to pray for one another, and sometimes that involves prayer for someone when we see them get into sin, and it is a sin not leading to death. So that is what he is talking about, one specific application. Now, this is not an authorization to get involved in judging. This is not a situation to authorize getting involved in gossip or maligning. Notice it doesn't say, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, go and talk to him about it. It doesn't say, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin not leading to death, bring it up at prayer meeting to make sure everybody knows about it and um, everybody's aware that he's doing whatever it is he's doing. It's talking about the fact that if you see another believer involved in carnality that, and in sin that doesn't lead to death, then you need to take it to the Lord in prayer. You need to make this part of your petition. Last time I said that prayer can be remembered, the parts of prayer can be remembered in terms of a four-part acronym, CATS. The C stands for confession. We need to always make sure we, when we pray that we confess our sins first and foremost. The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm 66, 18. If we do not confess our sins and we are out of fellowship, then our prayers will not get any higher than the ceiling. The second aspect of prayer is adoration. This is our praise to God, the expression of our uh, honoring him, recognizing who he is and what he has done. The third element, the T, stands for thanksgiving. This is where we express our gratitude. The more we advance in the spiritual life, the greater our gratitude should be. Gratitude is a barometer of our understanding of grace and is a response to grace. And so we are to be thankful in all things and for all things, the Scripture teaches. The fourth kind of prayer, the fourth element of prayer, is supplication. In supplication, we have, there are two parts. The first is intercession, where we pray for others. And the second is petition, where we present our request to God in terms of our own personal needs. So this is the basic uh, category here. And so under the category of intercession, as part of our supplication to God, we are to pray when we see other believers getting involved in sin that God would uh, deal with them and bring their attention to that and that God will answer that prayer. That is part of asking uh, according to his will, uh, verse 14. So the first condition is if... And this is maybe you will, maybe you not, will not, but you will more than likely at some point observe. That's the context of the aorist active subjunctive of the verb adon in, uh, in the Greek. If anyone sees or observes his brother sinning. And here we have a present active participle plus the accusative of the same word hamartia. The word hamartia means to uh, miss, has the idea of missing the mark or fall, falling short of God's standard. So uh, any sin is anything which falls short of the standard of God's character and God's perfect righteousness. So if anyone observes another believer sinning a sin, and then we have the phrase not to death literally in the Greek, a sin not to death. 
looks like this. You have the negative may, then the uh, uh, preposition pros, and then the word for death, uh, thanaton, not leading to death. And so M-E-P-R-O-S, and then thanaton is T-H-A-N-A-T-O-N. The ending, the O-N ending, when linked to pros, uh, is a, this is an accusative case, and when you have pros plus the accusative, there are several different emphases, but one of which is to indicate, it indicates movement, it indicates direction, and towards someone or something, and it indicates direction in the sense of showing that one course of action results in another course of action, that if you do one thing, that it will result in something else. Thus, this should be translated, if anyone observes another believer sinning a sin, not resulting in death. If anyone sees a brother sinning a sin, not resulting in death. Now, that brings us up to another important question, and that is the idea of death. What do we mean by death here? And so we have to review the doctrine of death in the Scripture. Remember in the Scripture, death does not mean cessation of existence. Death doesn't mean that you stop existing. That's how, or that something has stopped existing. That's a common understanding, but that's not the scriptural understanding. The basic idea in death in the Scripture is separation. Separation. Something is separated from something else. The first kind of death we run into in the Scripture is that which is mentioned in Genesis 2.17, when God announced that in, in the perfect environment for Adam and the woman in the Garden of Eden, that if they, that they could eat from any tree, the fruit of any tree in the garden, but if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then in that day they would certainly die. And there you have a, a interesting Hebrew construction, a cal infinitive absolute, or a cal infinitive construct with a cal imperfect verb, and the idea there is to always emphasize the reality and certainty of that assertion. It doesn't mean, as some of, some have said at times, dying you will die. Let me, um, let me even exegete that phrase in the English. Dying is either, could, in English, with the ing ending, could be a participle or a gerund. Dying you will die. Now the word here, the second form of that verb, die, is what's called a finite verb. With the ing, it indicates process. So the dying would indicate in the process of dying, you will die. Now, that doesn't even make sense in English, because when, when that is translated that way, the, the attempt is to emphasize two kinds of death, spiritual death and physical death. But as we've seen, and I've studied this many times every now and then, I just have to go over this in a little more detail to remind you of this. 
as we've seen many times, this really is a poor translation. It doesn't even make sense when you exegete it in the English. The, the, the purpose in Greek was to use a Cal infinitive construct in order to emphasize certainty. When you combine that and you have the repetition of the verb, it doesn't indicate a twofold action, but an intensity, a certainty, an emphasis on the action. And in the past, I have gone through almost every use of this in the in Genesis, and you have phrases like, walking you will walk. Well, that doesn't mean anything. It's not talking about two different kinds of walking. It's talking about the certainty, you will certainly walk. It's eating you will eat. It's not talking about two different kinds of eating. It's talking about the fact that you will certainly eat. So... Uh, the phraseology in the Hebrew is to emphasize the certainty and the reality of something. And the certainty is that in the day that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would certainly, there would be a certainty, there would be, there's an emphasis there. You can count on it. You will die. In that instant, you're going to die. Now, Adam lived to be 930 years old, so he did not die physically for 930 years. What happened when he ate the fruit? It wasn't physical death. It was spiritual death. He died spiritually, which means he was separated from God. His relationship with God was destroyed, and he no longer had that relationship, and that is called spiritual death. It does not mean that something ceased existing, but it ceased its operation, and that is his human spirit was no longer functioning It. Uh, was, he was separated from God, and therefore there was no longer uh, it no longer served a purpose in terms of his relationship, fellowship, or rapport with God. This made Adam, because man is created body, soul, and spirit, may, he shifted from having three parts, a body, soul, and a spirit, to two parts, just a body and a soul. That's what the New Testament calls a sukikos man or a soulish man, and it's only a regeneration that the human spirit is restored or recovered. And since Adam... Adam just, it just got nullified with Adam, but what happens is his progeny in spiritual death are born without a human spirit. See, he didn't lose it, it just lost its function. But for us, we're born without it, we're born just a body and a soul, and God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to us a human spirit at the point of salvation. So the first kind of death is spiritual death. The second kind of death is physical death. And in physical death, the soul does not cease existing. It is simply separated from the body. If you're an unbeliever, you continue to have a, a conscious existence, but in a place called torments. In Luke, we're told the story about Lazarus and the rich man. The reason that is not a parable is because parables do not use proper names. So whenever you have a, a story in the, in the uh, Gospels and you think that it's, well, is this a, just an allegory? Is this just a story, a parable? If there are proper names, then it's talking about specific actual historical incidences. If it just talks about uh, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, there was a man walking along the road and and he was from Samaria. That never gives him a name. Never gives him a specific identity. That's just a uh, that's a parable. That's just a story. 
So when you have the story of Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus is a specific individual. He was a beggar outside the house of this extremely wealthy man. The wealthy man died, and he went to torments. Lazarus died, and he is a believer, and he went to a place called Paradise or Abraham's Bosom. Now, this is before the cross. And from that story, we understand, from that episode, we understand that there are two basic compartments where the dead went. All of this is referred to in the Old Testament as simply Sheol. You had two places in the Old Testament. The first is called Paradise or Abraham's Bosom. This is where all Old Testament believers went. There was a gulf that separated these two places, and torments is a place of, phys- uh, of it, what would we, by analogy, physical torment. It indicates they have some kind of body, not a necessarily a corporeal body like we have now, but some kind of body for the soul where pain is felt, and it is a fiery pain. Because when you have the rich man over here, he sees Lazarus over here, and he requests of Father Abraham that Lazarus would be able to dip his finger into the water and put it on his tongue so that he could have relief from the fiery pain. That tells us that for Lazarus to have a finger to put water on the rich man's tongue, that there has to be some kind of interim body. Now, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it says he descended into Hades, and that means Hades is just another term that is synonymous to Sheol. He descended into Hades. He took captivity captive. That means he took the Old Testament saints to heaven, and he announced a victory to unbelievers. And this is also another compartment down here is the compartment where the Genesis 6 uh, angels who left their first estate the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6 are confined. And so Jesus then announced victory, that the cross had been accomplished, and so there was a victory over the enemies of God that was secured at the cross, and this not only secured the salvation of Old Testament saints, but it secured the condemnation of both the fallen angels and unbelievers. So that it tells us that physical death is not the destruction of the soul, but it is the separation of the soul from the body, but it picks up some sort of interim body. We're given very little information about it, so we can't speculate, but it is some sort of, of a body that can, that does have sensation. The third type of death that's mentioned in the scripture is called the second death. The second death. And this occurs at the great white throne judgment when all unbelievers are sentenced to eternity in the lake of fire. Now let's put a timeline up here. Jesus Christ came at the incarnation in approximately 4 B.C. In approximately 33 A.D., Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross. Fifty days later, you have the first advent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, and you have the birth of the church. And so now we are in the church age, which ends with the rapture of the church, 
when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds for the church, his bride, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we are we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And that's in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18 and following. We are taken to heaven where there is a judgment evaluation for believers called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ where we receive rewards or lose rewards as the case may be. Uh, and during that time there will be a seven-year tribulation on the earth where there will be a conflagration unlike any in human history tremendous warfare and violence as well as natural disasters earthquakes uh, asteroids hitting the earth all kinds of other things take place where almost everyone is killed and the human race would self-destruct except Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the end and the second advent defeats the armies of the antichrist and secures the protection of Israel, and ends the tribulation. He then establishes his kingdom, a literal kingdom on the earth for 1,000 years, which we refer to as the millennium. From the Latin word milli, meaning 1,000, the older term was from the Greek word, and the older term was kiliasm. Same idea from the Greek for uh, 1,000. That ends... With, when, during this time, Satan is bound. Satan is bound, and he is not released until the end of the millennium. Now, why is that? Because the, those who survive the tribulation are going to go into the millennium with corporal bodies. They haven't died. They're going to go into the millennium with corporal bodies, and they're going to have, they're going to marry, and they're going to have children, and those children are going to have sin natures. And see, for years, people and centuries, people have been saying, "Well, how can God hold me accountable? I'm living in a fallen world, and it's all Adam's fault, and and you know we're just living in an imperfect environment, and it's my mother's fault, and my father's fault, and it's the government's fault. We always want to blame somebody, but this is going to be a time of." perfect environment on the earth. The only problem is going to be you're going to have millions of babies born with sin natures. Sin natures operating in perfect environment, perfect government, perfect world, and they're going to just, you know, muck everything up again. And that's to demonstrate that the problem isn't an environmental problem. It isn't a, 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 an inherited problem. It's a problem of of sin and a problem of uh, personal volition and rebellion against God. But there will be at the end of the millennium a number of people who reject Christ, reject grace. Satan is going to be released, and he is going to lead a very short rebellion called the Gog and Magog Rebellion at the end of the millennium. God is going to wipe it out through uh, supernatural fire and brimstone from heaven. And then there will be the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. And at that time... That is when all unbelievers, see, they're still down here in torments. They're still down here awaiting judgment. At that time, they're going to be brought out, and they are going to be evaluated at the great white throne judgment on the basis of their works. Revelation chapter 20, on the basis of their works. Are they good enough? God has a standard up here, perfect righteousness, and no matter how good they are, nobody can get to perfect righteousness. It's not an issue of sin because sin was taken care of on the cross. Jesus Christ paid the 
penalty for every single sin in human history on the cross. As we've seen in our study about substitution on Wednesday night, it's a real substitution. He truly died for every sin so that the sin of the whole world is propitiated, the whole world is redeemed, and atonement is for everyone. But... You can't get to heaven just because your sins are paid for. You have to have the perfect righteousness of Christ. There has to be a spiritual rebirth because you are incomplete, not having a human spirit. And there has to be identification with Christ rather than identification with Adam, which is what we're going to be studying uh, as we advance in our study on salvation in our Wednesday night study. So those who were lost, those who did not trust Christ or evaluate on the basis of their works, sin isn't the issue. None of them are good enough. They're, they're, the best they can get is, is filthy rags righteousness. From Isaiah 64, 6, it's all rejected by God, and so they are then condemned and sent to the lake of fire. That is the second death when they are sent to the lake of fire for all eternity. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. It's the third. So we've looked at spiritual death, physical death, and the second death. The fourth category of death in the Bible is sexual death. Sexual death. This is the loss of ability to procreate and to produce children. This may be as a result of disease, injury, or uh, age. The loss of the ability to procreate and to produce children, this is true of Abraham and Sarah, and it happened ten years before the birth of Isaac to demonstrate that God could bring life where there was death. And so uh, the birth of Isaac was a miraculous birth because uh, neither Abraham nor Sarah were able to produce children anymore. The fifth kind of death is the positional death. The positional death of the believer. This is covered in Romans chapter 6. Verse 2, the believer is identified positionally and legally with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, 2, that we have died with him. This is our positional death, and the argument for Paul in that section in 6, 2 through 5, is that since we have died to sin positionally, we must also do so experientially. So that means that that technically and legally the power, the authority, the tyranny of the sin nature was broken, separated at the instant of uh, salvation. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The sixth kind of death is carnal death or temporal death. Remember the Greek, the English word carnal, we picked that up from from the King James Version. Carnal was the old King James Version terminology used to translate the Greek word sarkinos in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. S-A-R-K-I-N-O-S. Sark is from the Greek word sarx, meaning flesh. And so this is a reference to the sin nature. Sarkinos is simply the uh, adverbial form, meaning fleshly, to live uh, in a way that is characterized by the sin nature. So when the believer is operating on the sin nature, 
he produces dead. He is he is dead positionally. This is found in James chapter one, uh, verse fifteen. So when the believer is out of fellowship, he is in carnal or in temporal death. When he is in carnal or temporal death, he produces dead works. This is the seventh kind of death in the scripture, the production of dead works. And this is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, and Revelation 3, 1. When you operate according to the sin nature, you are temporally dead and you produce dead works. Now, those dead works can look just like the works you produce when you're filled with the Spirit. You can be going to church, reading your Bible, praying. You can be witnessing. You can be involved in uh, all kinds of Christian activities. You can be giving. You can be uh, working down at the church. You can be involved in charitable occupation, whatever it might be, because it's not done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's done in the power of the sin nature. And therefore, even though it's good, even though it's moral, even though it uh, seems to be no different from what you did when you were uh, in fellowship, it now has no productivity because it doesn't originate from the work of the, of the Holy Spirit in the life, so it produces dead works. And then we come to the eighth category of death in the Scripture, and that is the one uh, we are studying here, the sin unto death or the sin resulting in death in 1 John uh, chapter 5, verse 16. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. So here we say we could understand this. If anyone observes another believer sinning a sin, uh, not resulting in physical death. Well, that would just then mean that if you, you saw someone commit a sin and it, they didn't kill themselves in the process. So that would be an awfully restricted application. We all commit all kinds of sins that um, don't, kill us immediately that don't even involve anything fatal. Uh, it obviously would exclude spiritual, I mean, uh, sexual death. It obviously excludes spiritual death because it's talking about a, another believer, a brother. It's not talking about the second death. It uh, is not talking about simply carnal or carnal death or dead works because any time a believer sins, he's in dead works. He's producing uh He's in carnal death. So the only option that we're left with is that this is talking about a, a, a certain kind of physical death, that a miserable death, a miserably long uh, period of dying, that is the result of divine discipline. So this brings us to the doctrine of the sin unto death. Now, before we get there, let's just briefly look at verse 17, because... Uh, John is going to remind us in a very short sentence that all unrighteousness is sin. You might be saying, well, if anybody sees another believer sinning a sin, what is sin? Well, there we get a definition of verse 17, all unrighteousness. That is anything that falls short of the standard of God. The word for unrighteous there is the Greek word adike. That this A is the, called an alpha privative, and it's like the UN in English. It negates the phrase, and then DK is the word for righteousness. So it is a simple statement of unrighteousness. This defines what unrighteousness is. All unrighteousness is sin. 
And there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Oh, so he wants to make it clear that some sins don't lead to death, but there are some sins that do lead to death, that do result in a sin unto death scenario. So let's start with our definition in the doctrine of sin unto death. The term that we've seen already, pros plus the accusative, indicates result, something resulting in something else. So the function of the accusative case there is best described as sin resulting in death. Sin resulting in death. This is the most extreme form of divine discipline that comes from the integrity of God. Remember, the integrity of God includes the righteousness of God, which is his absolute standard. The justice of God is the application of that standard. So when uh, the righteousness of God rejects something, the justice of God must, must judge or condemn it. So in the life of the believer... When the believer gets involved in sin, extended sin, which we call carnality, then God in his justice must uh, discipline the believer. And so there are different stages of divine discipline, but the most extreme form and the most painful form is when the believer stays out of fellowship for a lengthy period of time or commits certain horrible sins that God decides that it's time as it were, to take him out of the game, that the believer is no longer uh, going to um, <clears throat> going to be growing or maturing. He may leave him alive for a while to be a test for other people in his life. Isn't that wonderful to think that in your carnality, God may leave, leave you alive just so you can be a test for other believers so that they can uh, grow to maturity by their response to your carnality. What a way to go through life. So the basic definition of sin unto death is this is the most extreme form of divine discipline for the believer. This leads to the second principle, and that is that God as a loving father, as part of his love, executes discipline on believers. God disciplines believers. It comes from his justice because he loves us. And we see this in passages such as Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 5 through 7. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, where we read, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And the term sons there is a technical term for believers. You have forgotten the exhortation, that is the doctrinal commandment. And <clears throat> there we read a quote, a quote from uh you have two quotes here from Job 5.17 and Proverbs 3.11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So here we see a connection between the operation of the justice of God and the operation of the love of God. This is why I always define integrity with four key elements, four key elements that we find linked together in the Psalms. The righteousness of God, which describes his standard, the justice of God, which is the application of the standard, the love of God, which is the motivation of his action, and the truth of God, his veracity, which is the 
expression of that standard, especially as it is revealed in the absolute truth of Scripture. So these elements all work together in perfect harmony. It is only man and human viewpoint that comes along and says, well, how can a, how can a loving God, how can a loving God send his creatures to hell? And you always hear that. Uh, in fact, I was talking with someone just the other day, and they were telling me about a, a dinner conversation they had had with a client in which this, uh, this client had expressed this, um, this absolute truth, and this man was telling me that his wife just kind of walked right into the guy and left him slashed and, breath- and bleeding because she was emphasizing the principle that I always emphasize, that is that the issue isn't how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire, but how can a righteous God let sinners into heaven? And see, man always wants to impose his standards on God and to make God fit man's standards, and the issue is God has his own unique uh, set of standards. So the context for the sin unto death is a function of divine discipline, which is the operation of God's perfect, unconditional love for the believer as his child. When the believer gets out of line to a certain extent, then God is going to uh, bring him under the most severe form of discipline. Point number three, certain sins are far worse as far as divine discipline is concerned. Some sins carry compound discipline, such as judging, uh, or triple compound discipline, such as judging. Matthew 7, 1 through 2, that uh, judge not that ye be not judged. See, if you get involved in criticizing some other believer, then you are going to be uh, disciplined by God for judging. You're going to be disciplined for the sin that this other believer is committing. You're going to pick up that judgment as well, and God is going to intensify that. So that is uh, triple discipline. So we're told not to gossip, judge, or malign others. For that reason, we know that... that um, that some sins can bring about worse discipline. But don't put that under some kind of human viewpoint standard. You know, usually people have their list of the terrible two or the nasty nine or the uh, fearful five, and you commit one of those sins and you're really out of fellowship and you're really going to get it. But God emphasizes certain other sins, and if you are gossiping or maligning, then you can come under triple compound uh, discipline. Generally speaking, though, point number four, for the believer in rebellion, there are three stages of divine discipline. Three stages of divine discipline. The first stage is a warning discipline in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will uh, sup with him. And the point there is that Jesus is outside. He's been excluded from the life of the church. They're out of fellowship. They're in carnality. And God is going to bring certain level, a certain level of discipline in your life to get your attention, to confess sin, to get back in fellowship, and begin applying doctrine. But if that doesn't get your attention, then there will be an intensified discipline. And this is the second stage of divine discipline where God takes you through uh, suffering uh, for discipline and it may get fairly intense. If that doesn't get your attention, then the third stage is 
the sin resulting in death, 1 John 5.16. Now, point number five, there are two categories of suffering. There are two categories of suffering. First of all, there is suffering for discipline. So just because you're going through suffering, just because you're going through adversity, doesn't mean that you're under divine discipline. Somebody commented recently, said, well, you know, I really don't ever recall anybody ever saying, well, I'm going through a lot of adversity now. It must be divine discipline. We always think, well, this is going to be suffering for blessing. But there are different reasons we suffer in life and go through adversity. We go through adversity because we're living in Satan's cosmic system. That's the first reason. You're living in a fallen world, in a fallen system, and as a result of that, there are there's going to be uh, random adversity and suffering that just as good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. And you may be involved in meteorological disasters where there's a tornado or a hurricane or some other kind of storm or uh, up here we, you get a bad freeze and you have problems in your house, something of that nature, and that's that happens to good people and bad people. You can be involved in a nation that's going through discipline, and there's economic crises, such as the Great Depression in the early part of the 20th century, and believers and unbelievers, uh, mature believers and carnal believers, and all suffered alike and went through various consequences in that uh, Great Depression. So there are all kinds of things that happen in life. You can have health problems simply because you live in a fallen world. You have a fallen body. And for some of us, our bodies are falling more than others. But because of sin, and living in a sinful world, it just gets a little worse the older we get. And it gets harder and harder to see things, and it gets harder to ha- harder for some of us to even see our feet. But after a while, we, we realize that this is just part of living in a fallen world. So we suffer because we live in a fallen world. We also suffer because we're associated with, with sinners, with fallen people. We may be associated, we may be working for a company like Enron, and we may be doing everything right, and we may be a wonderful employee, and we may be uh, doing the best we can to bring uh, success to that company, but the leadership at the top is making bad decisions, illegal decisions, and as a result, we we end up suffering, and that happened with many, many people who were, uh, quote, innocent victims, and they were just a good secretary or custodian or just an excellent employee, and yet they had all of their money tied up and in, in all, their, all their retirement tied up in, in the corporation, and when it went bad, uh, they lost everything, and that's uh, we have association with people who are fallen creatures. Sometimes the association with a fallen creature is closer to home, and it's our husband or our wife, and they make bad decisions. They get out of fellowship. They get in carnality and make bad decisions, and we end up reaping the consequences for that. So we go through adversity because we live in a fallen world and we live with fallen people, and then we go through adversity simply because we're fallen creatures and we make bad decisions, and we have to suffer the consequences of those bad decisions. Whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. So we just have the natural consequences of our own bad decisions. Sometimes that's all we get in terms of divine discipline. God says, that the natural consequences from this bad decision are, are serious enough that ought to get their attention. Sometimes God comes along and intensifies it on top of that. 
But at other times we go through suffering for blessing. God allows this suffering in our lives to give us opportunities to trust him and to apply doctrine so that we can uh, mature and grow spiritually and so that our spiritual growth might accelerate. Now, the sin unto death, the sin resulting in death, is related to the stages of reversionism. And by reversionism, I'm referring to the concept of spiritual backsliding, where the believer reverts to his former manner of life as an unbeliever. He no longer lives like a believer. He is living um, like an unbeliever. And here are the various stages of reversionism. You may be growing and advancing as a believer, and then you revert, and back you go. And this, may, this starts off with the first stage, which is reaction and distraction. Something happens in life. We go through suffering that we think is unjustified, and so we react to it in anger, hostility, bitterness, something like that. We're angry, God, why are you taking me through this? And so we are distracted from spiritual advance because of a negative re- reaction to suffering in our life. And rather than uh, uh, being transformed through doctrine, we start letting the sin nature control, and we're out of fellowship. Now, the way to recover is to confess the sin and to stop uh, uh, harboring that level of resentment and bitterness uh, in that situation and to start applying doctrine so that you can reverse course and spiritually advance. But if you continue to react through um, wrong decisions then what happens is you you eventually give up on doctrine, and you hear somebody say, well, you know, doctrine really doesn't work. I'm in this horrible situation. I'm going through this crisis in life. And then rather than using doctrine to find stability, you start looking for stability in something else in life, which we call the frantic search for happiness. You start trying to dull the pain in life, perhaps, through uh, uh, alcoholism or drugs or maybe you just get involved in some other sort of uh, something else to sort of numb the pain. And uh, maybe you just look for pleasure in everything, every possible way. And so you become a pleasure junkie in order to avoid pain. There, there's all kinds of psychological techniques that people can use. But all this is involved looking for happiness someplace other than uh, Bible doctrine and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as that continues, what happens is what the Bible, what I call soul poverty. I call that soul poverty because of the passage in Scripture in Psalm 106.15 referring to the, the Jews when they were in the desert and they were complaining to God. See, they were in reversionism. They were reacting to their rather, uh, uh, consistent diet of manna every day. So they wanted to go to something else to make them happy. So they want to go back to Egypt and the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. So God sent them quail. But the commentary on that in Psalm 106.15 is that God gave them what they asked for, but he sent a wasting disease among them. He, he sent emptiness among them so that, that they got what they thought they wanted, but the result was that it didn't satisfy them and there was a poverty, an impoverishment of their soul. And what happens is that the more we search for happiness, 
the more happiness becomes elusive and the more the believer becomes bored, disillusioned, frustrated, and he begins to look for happiness and pleasure in sex and social distractions or drugs or whatever, and it just leads to a greater and greater emptiness in the soul, which he tries to fill up, and it becomes a terrible cycle between soul poverty and the frantic search for happiness. This eventually leads to an emotional revolt of the soul where the believer is just operating on emotion all the time, constantly trying to to uh, find happiness, constantly making decisions based on what makes him feel better and what makes him uh, gives him some measure of happiness or pleasure. This then leads to ingrained negative volition, ingrained negative volition. He becomes more and more negative as he reacts to God. Nothing makes him happy. It's all God's fault. And by this stage, his reverse is almost impossible because he has dug himself into such a pit of carnality and and bitterness and anger and resentment towards God that he now completely turns away from the truth, never shows up in Bible class, usually quits associating with his with his Christian friends, and he is looking everywhere he can to find some kind of meaning and happiness in life. This leads to a blackout of the soul based on the Greek word mateotes in Ephesians chapter 4.17 where Paul talks about the Gentiles who are walking around in the emptiness or the vacuum of their soul. And once you have rejected doctrine and the soul is empty, then what happens is that nature abhors a vacuum and you start sucking in all kinds of false ideas, false teachings. Next thing you know, you're going to be following Shirley MacLaine out on a broken limb and you're going to be uh, getting involved in, in uh, astrology. You're going to be getting involved in... Uh, uh, any any kind of false religious system or false philosophical system that says that it can provide you with happiness and meaning in life. And on the inside, you're just a miserable person. You're developing scar tissue on the soul, which is called the hardness of heart. In, in uh, John 14:20, it's referred to as hardening the neck. In uh, Nehemiah 9:16 to 17, and hardening the face in Proverbs 21. 29 to 31. So you harden yourself even more against God, and this scar tissue builds up in the soul, so there's no longer any sensitivity to the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And so you find ways to rationalize your way out of anything that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, and now you end up in full-blown cosmic degeneracy full-blown cosmic degeneracy where you are thinking like the world, you live like the world, you act like the world, and there's absolutely no difference between you and, and many unbelievers. And in this final stage of reversionism, God will often pull the believer out of the uh, angelic conflict game, as it were, in the sin unto death. This is where the sin unto death fits into the Scripture. Now, we have some really... Uh, profound examples in Scripture of this, found in several places. For example, in the Old Testament, we have the example of King Saul. In 1 Samuel 15 and 15, God brings Samuel under, I mean, uh, Saul under discipline because he refuses to obey God by annihilating all of the enemy. And, uh, and he goes through uh, various degrees of divine discipline. And finally, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, 
uh, he kills himself. But the last years of his life, he is absolutely miserable. He has all kinds of, uh, of uh, episodes, psychotic breaks with reality. He hates those around him. He's paranoid. He's uh, involved in revenge against David, who is really not his enemy at all. And so Saul goes through the last years of his life absolutely uh, in, in absolute misery. The Corinthians were going through, some of the Corinthians were going through divine discipline, as we'll see when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that they were abusing the Lord's table. And there Paul says that many are weak, that's warning discipline. Many are sickly, that's intensified discipline. And many sleep, that is uh, the sin unto death. There were those who died the sin unto death in Corinth because of their abuse of the Lord's table. We also have the unique case of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, uh, 1 through 10. They weren't exactly in perpetual carnality, but at that early stage of the, of the church, the Holy Spirit is protecting the church from certain influences and emphasizing certain realities, and he wants to make sure at that early stage that the church doesn't get the idea that they can just lie against the Holy Spirit. So they lied, and they instantly died. Those are just a few cases of, uh, of the sin unto death in Scripture. Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20 are another case uh, of living in perpetual carnality resulting in uh, the sin unto death. So this is what John warns against, that you have options in the Christian life. Are you going to abide in Christ so that you will not be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ? Or, on the other hand, Are you going to get involved in perpetual carnality and end up going out under the sin unto death and being completely ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ? Now, next time we'll come back and we'll wrap up our study of this first epistle to John with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. We thank you for your grace that that has provided a solution for every single sin in human history, that you sent your Son to die on the cross as a substitute for us, that he died and paid the penalty for us. Father, we thank you that our salvation is not dependent on who we are or what we do. It's not dependent on works. It's not dependent upon morality. It's not dependent upon church association, church affiliation, baptism, ritual, or any other human factor. It is totally dependent on what Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is make a decision. Determine what you are trusting in for your eternal salvation. Scripture says that all you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins that he paid the penalty, and that there is nothing you can add to that. You are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.